I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. We're joined today by Roger Dagorn, the master sommelier who has a long career working with wine in New York City. Hello, sir. How are you? Fine. How are you? Great to see you. Thank you. So you got your start uh, working as a sommelier at the Maurice restaurant in the Parker Meridian. Yes, but I had uh, some training beforehand. Uh, I had uh, uh, worked in my uh, the family restaurant for quite a few years, and it was very much of a wine-oriented restaurant. My father was the chef there, chef owner. Uh, with my cousin, who uh, was his partner, and both of them had have had uh, 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 training as some as sommeliers and have worked the floor as sommeliers. So they used to have winemaker dinners, and I was very much active with that. So I, I learned a lot right right there, and uh, also learned the service. And I already took a course on wine, uh, which I very much enjoyed. And it was the same course that my father and my cousin took. They were both first in their class. I wasn't going to be outdone, so I was <laughs> too, with the higher marks. <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you have a long career of doing quite well at competitions. Um, was that sort of early in the sommelier game? I mean, what year was that that your parents were, uh, your dad was a, a sommelier? Well, uh, the, my father was a sommelier in the 70s. Yeah, and maybe even earlier. Actually, earlier than that, in the 60s. Uh, and yeah, this was in New York or in, in New York? In France. Yes. So, uh, well, we moved uh, from uh, from France to English-speaking Canada in uh, 51, and then to New York in 59, where I, my father was working at uh, my great-uncle's restaurant called La Morique. Oh, okay. And, oh, yeah. So he worked in the kitchen there and then worked the... Uh, the floor as a sommelier, and uh, so there were sommeliers around way back then too. Yeah, it's it's amazing because it, it feels feels like what culture there was, you were exactly in the middle of at that time well, uh, for sommeliers and you. I followed my passion. Yeah, yeah, and what or was it? Became a passion. <laughs> yeah, well, sometimes with restaurants, you're never sure which one it is. But what was it like uh, working with the family there? I and mean, what was uh, what was being sold at that time? Was it mostly Bordeaux, or what was the market like? Well, uh, there was a French restaurant, of course, uh, 
but it's specialized in wines from all the different regions. The cuisine mm -hmm. was based on the different regions of France. The wines, of course, were paired to go with those cuisines. So in other words, if there was a Burgundian dish, of course, you served white and red Burgundies. Uh, sure. If there were uh, wines from, uh, uh, from Bordeaux, of course, they went with that type of cuisine. You know, lamb and uh, beef, uh, Bordelais. Uh, yeah, so it, and Loire, Alsace, uh, Rhone followed. And so that was the, uh, the direction. And that was at the time when uh, California wines were just starting to be really introduced on the New York market. And so, of course, we uh, uh, had, our, uh, had some California wines that we promoted. Every month we would have winemaker dinners and uh, it would feature a different uh, region of France. But there was always one month that was uh, for uh, California wines. And who was coming through the room for the dinners at that time in terms of producers? Joe Heights. Was one. What was he like in person? Oh, uh, very interesting uh, fella. Uh, very confident. Uh, knew his wines, knew his competition, and uh, was very uh, forward and didn't spare his words. Yeah, is that true? <laughs> Cut right to the quick. Oh yes. And uh, what about the French producers? Are anybody standout names that I might know today? Well. Uh, my goodness, this goes back a long time. I can't remember specifics. Uh, there was, uh, uh, of course, Hugel from uh, uh, from Azaz. Johnny uh, Hugel. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, there was uh, La Doucette. Uh, oh, sure. For me. And, oh, oh, my goodness, there were, there were quite a few. Jaboulet uh, from the Rhone Valley. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you, you went to the Maurice, and what was that transition like? Well, when uh, the family restaurant closed in... Um, December 31st, 1979, I went to work for various uh, restaurants and uh, wound up working in, uh, Maurice, at the Maurice in the Parker Meridian in 1981. And uh, there I worked as a sommelier and uh, was there for eight years. And, and it was, uh, it was a, a fun job. Um, interesting. Uh, I was given the, uh, the buyer position as well. Uh, shortly after I started, and so I made the list to my taste and to uh, uh, Chef Christian Dolivrier's cuisine. And my philosophy at the time was, I would choose the wines based on the cuisine. And the cuisine came; the food came first. The wine was the accompaniment. That was Christian Dolivrier at the time, yeah. Who went on to work for Ducasse and others, right? And uh, what were you uh, focused in on at that time? What were the kind of wines that you were serving and bringing to the list? Well, certainly French wines, but uh, we started experimenting with uh, other regions. Chile uh, was the first, I guess, uh, South, uh, South American wine, uh, wine region. And uh, I noticed that there were some that were kind of developing and uh, uh, had interesting aromatics that uh, I could... Uh, Pair with uh, Christian's cuisine, and uh, introduced it to the customers as something new and different. How many sommeliers were there in New York at that time, give or take? Oh my goodness, I would say about six or eight. Yeah, and mm -hmm. what year was, were you at the Maurice when the... I was there from eighty-one to eighty-nine. And how do you think you evolved as a buyer at that time? I mean, how did your own interests change over that eight-year period? Because that's a fairly long time. Yeah, well, that was at the beginning of the uh, competitions. They had the mm -hmm. Sopexa Best Sommelier from 
wines of uh, and spirits of France, which I did compete. I uh, won in New York two years in a row and uh, was uh, runner-up in the national two years in a row. And so I fared well. Yeah, well, that's really good. Mm-hmm. I, I remember that was quite a big deal, mm-hmm. uh, even at the start of my career. Uh, so you, you leave the Maurice, and where did you go then? Oh, my goodness. I went to work in a Chinese restaurant restaurant as a sommelier, a very high-end Chinese restaurant called Se Yang. What was that experience like? That was a total new experience because it was different cuisine. Yeah. And, uh, you know, most people think of Chinese food as being everyday food and not serious food. But there is a culture for uh, uh, high-end haute cuisine, if you like, haute Mandarin cuisine. And it, it uh, was personified there. And it was very interesting to f- match wine with that uh, type of cuisine. It was a, rest- a restaurant that had sister restaurants uh, in Switzerland, in Germany, and in Paris, and one also in Beverly Hills. Uh, and the food was basically the same, but tailored to the national temperament uh, of, uh, at that time and uh, of each of the countries. And so in Switzerland, France, and Germany, of course, wine was very, very popular. And uh, in, the, in New York, uh, I think people usually drank beer with, uh, sure. with uh, Chinese food. But in effect, there, uh, that was a restaurant that catered to a lot of people in uh, businesses. And they would come in and uh, to, uh, take out their, their clients. And they would order high-end wines. So we had a huge selection of Bordeaux. Didn't, that didn't necessarily work with that type of cuisine. But it was, they took a different approach that uh, being Chinese uh, restaurant, they had a lazy Susan at each table. And, of course, people would order many different dishes. And the wine would be another course, basically. And that's how they, they projected it to the, uh, the customers. And, of course, people would order high-end uh, Bordeaux. And from Rhone Valley, Cote Roti and, and Chateau du Pup, um, Burgundies, so much. And, then, and of course, uh, Alsatian wines and German Rieslings did very well. And you had been pursuing your uh, quarter of Master Sommelier studies. And, and were you, uh, did you get the Master Sommelier at that time or was it a little bit earlier? Or? Actually, I had started prior to Tseyang. Um, but since I had already been teaching uh, uh, sommeliers professionally and been in competition uh, uh, prior to that time, um, it was at Seyang that I actually passed my exam. I had gone to London and uh, passed the, the final stage. So at that time, you had to actually go to London because there wasn't a branch in oh, the America. Oh, there was a branch there, in, there was. In, in, uh, in California, in Monterey. And I did my first stages in, in uh, Monterey. Uh, but my last stage, I, I uh, completed in London itself. And now there's about 200 or give or take Master Sommiers. How many were there in America at that time? I was the 14th to pass. And, and what was that experience like? Um, how did, was it um, sort of a whole nother level for America? Or how yes. did you view it at the time? Well, I don't know how I viewed it so much. Uh, I don't think I changed, but... Uh, I think the perception of my skills, I guess, uh, had uh, changed in the view of many others uh, because I received that title 
uh, I received quite a bit of acclaim. Um, because it wasn't there wasn't so many around, and it was that's right. a pretty big yeah. deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a it, it's a difficult uh, title to to achieve. Uh, I kind of went through the fast track because I'd been doing it for a while. I had already been focused on it, and I had already been in competitions. So the theory I already was pretty uh, up to date on it, and uh, I worked the floor constantly. So uh, that I, I kind of mastered, and uh, the blind tastings. Well, I followed the procedure, and uh, it's like anything that you focus on, you can make it work uh, if you practice enough. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I mean, one of the things that's so fascinating about you is you have a continuous history on the floor that's probably longer than any other sommelier today that we could have on the show. Well, when I passed my master's sommelier exam, I thought seriously about going for my master's of wine. Yeah. And then I realized that my passion was the hospitality industry rather than uh, the so-called wine industry where wine trade in- industry I wasn't so much interested in the importing and distribution of wine or the or writing about wine I was more interested in introducing wines to people so that was that was more the direction of the uh, court of masters sommeliers and you mentioned to me that uh, Karen Waltek had originally uh, approached you for Chanterelle while you were at Si Yang and you decided to stay at Si Yang for a bit. Um, do you think that she had heard about you through the acclaim of the Master Sommelier? Yeah. Well, actually, I think it was more because I was uh, in contact with uh, anybody that was uh, interested in being a sommelier at the time. I did do a lot of training in those days. And, and I still do. <laughs> you you worked at French Culinary at the yes. restaurant there, Lacole. Yeah, Lacole. Um, yeah, for for a, for a little over a year, and uh, uh, but that was uh, that was a different experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, there there was more teaching, and uh, it was more closer to a well, I won't say nine to five job, but closer to a, a eight to eight job. But uh, it it was. Uh, it was a. Uh, I was a little bit of like a fish out of water, mm-hmm. and uh, so I didn't feel all that comfortable. I enjoyed it, uh, but I, th- I was there for a year and then moved back into the restaurant field. You felt since you'd grown up in a family restaurant that that was really where you felt comfortable inside yeah, of a restaurant. I, I enjoyed it. I yeah. enjoyed my time. Uh, that I, I spent five years working in my father's uh, restaurant. Uh, actually, a lot longer. But I spent five years in the kitchen after I took my uh, wine courses, and I said, well, you know, at, at, when you're young, you, you say uh, foolish things. I said, I went to my father, I said, hey, uh, Dad, I, uh, I learned everything there is to know about wine, and now I want to learn everything to, uh, there is to know about food. And so I went to work in the kitchen, and I very much enjoyed cooking, and I thought I was pretty good. Uh, but in New York, uh, being pretty good isn't good enough. You have to be great to be a chef in New York. Uh, and also... It was a little lonely being in the kitchen. I enjoy being with people. I like the contact with people. So I gravitated more to the front of the house. And that's where I am today. And Karen did eventually persuade you to go to Chanterelle, uh, which was in Tribeca, so a little bit of a move downtown for yes. you. Yeah, she had called me uh, a second time, and uh, uh, I took the bait, uh, and uh, and I'm glad I did. I I know that they were struggling at the time, but I just uh, like the challenge to see if I can make a difference. 
Uh, it did. Uh, we got a wonderful review in the New York Times uh, shortly after, and I wound up working there 16 years. Uh, and a lot has to do because Karen and David are such wonderful people and such dedicated people uh, and, and very giving. That really came across to me the one time I dined there. Karen was super nice. Oh, yes. Just, yes, she's the perfect hostess. And uh, what was it like working with David? Well, uh, how can I put uh, describe David? He's not a chef. He's an artist. Uh, I've, I've, I've worked with chefs, many chefs. Uh, my father was a chef. My great-uncle was a chef. They're dedicated professionals. But... Uh, David was some something else. He created uh, flavors and uh, put them in a beautiful context on the plate. And as I mentioned earlier, it was the quietest kitchen in in, uh, in New York. Uh, he wasn't a screamer. Not at all. And uh, uh, he made everybody on the line comfortable and everybody in the restaurant comfortable. You know, when they walked through the kitchen. And that was the atmosphere. And that's how it pervaded throughout the 16 years I was there. Do you think that that helped build staff retention? Oh, yes. Because it seemed when I was there that many people had not staff had been there many years. Well, uh, yes, people moved on because they had other careers. Uh, and when we selected uh, others to follow, basically in the dining room they were Staff members that had other professions, other careers, mostly artistic, and uh, they had to do something for a living, of course, and uh, waiting on uh, tables was known for at least paying the bills. Sure. But there, people saw the work involved as a bit of an art form, mm -hmm. uh, because we always gave a little extra, uh, and... Uh, the working conditions were wonderful, and uh, people got along. And if they didn't get along, um, they learned quickly. And it the, did, I'm sorry. The, they learned quickly how Chanterelle was and realized it's better here than other places. Yeah. And it did seem like there was an artistic bent to the restaurant. I remember all of those really wonderful menu, cover menu covers, right. prints. And they would change the every lounge. six months, and they were all very famous artists. That were regulars that would come into oh, the yes. restaurant. And oh, yes. Karen, mm -hmm. David would ask them to design a menu cover for them. Yes. Yeah. So, so it seemed in that way that they were supportive to the community of artists that were both maybe oh, very working much so. in the restaurant and, and dining in it. That is uh, totally correct, yeah. And what was Tribeca like at that time? What year was this? What years? Uh, my goodness, I started working there 1989. 19, no, I'm sorry, 1991, uh, 1993, rather. And uh, it was uh, still kind of a warehouse uh, neighborhood. It was just starting to change. It started to become gentrified, and uh, oh, a lot of people moved there and uh, bought lofts, and it changed overnight. Um, and we certainly developed that clientele, uh, they would come and, and dine with us. They'd come in jeans, and um, in those days, you don't come to a, res a fine dining restaurant in jeans. We allowed it, and there was that almost casual downtown feel, um, yet with casual but very, at the same time, formal service. 
and uh, the food was specific. There was no background music. The dining room was kind of minimalist. Uh, the plates were white. So it was focusing on the food and then focusing on the wine that went with the food. And, uh, and it progressed from there. And you threw some really interesting wine dinners and sake dinners yeah. there. We did have winemaker dinners, but there was a period there. Uh, I had always been interested in sake, but I wasn't very, I wasn't thrilled with the quality of sake mm-hmm. till, uh, oh, I'd say it was about 1994, 1995. I went to a very specific sake tasting. Uh, very high-end, uh, small production, uh, what they call jizakis or local sakis, and that was new to New York. I realized that here, these sakis weren't uh, that bland, uh, uh, ricey aroma. These had characteristics of fruit and floral notes, and I thought thought that these might work with uh, with fine dining. A cuisine, and I had approached Karen and David, and uh, I introduced them to these sakis, and uh, we started experimenting with the food, and lo and behold, it worked. Initially, it was we would do uh, tastings. Well, every month we the menu changed, and every month we would offer a tasting menu, a six course tasting menu, and we with those tasting menus we'd offer a wine pairing, uh, and so we started initially doing a pairing of wines, of which at least maybe one course might be with sake. Something new, something different. Some people liked it, some people didn't. But the whole idea was to understand the progression of the wine and sake with the six-course tasting menu. menu. Younger before oldest, good before uh, great, uh, young before old, uh, that concept. Um, and it worked. And we would do winemaker dinners, which were successful, but, you know, many restaurants were doing that. So we decided to do one time a, a, tasting, uh, a tasting menu or a dinner, pairing one dish with wine, one dish with sake, one dish with wine, another dish with sake. That's really interesting. That idea. went very well. And then... People were really getting interested in the sake. So from there, it progressed that uh, every year we would host a sake dinner, and we would have sake sake producers coming in from Japan, and we would do a 10-course dinner with all different sakes. And we would experiment uh, with with the sake and the food uh, for uh, several months before we'd have the dinner. And when it came about uh, they were huge successes we were booked every every year we did it for about 11 years and where did um, because I know that you're someone who really pursues something not just on the floor but on, on an academic level too where did your studies of sake take you well I, I started giving lectures uh, in different venues um, I had already started uh, teaching at New York City Culture of Technology part of City University which is something you still do today yes I do, yeah still do it to- twice a week and uh, uh, which breaks up my work week nicely it uh, keeps me focused and uh, and interested 
Um, because you're kind of using different parts of your brain and different different in effect, weeks. Yeah, yeah. Going to the restaurant, different switches, <laughs> and going to the, the school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, uh, people are interested in sake, and right now people are interested in sushi. It's it's a a big to do right now in the in the restaurant world. Uh, in fact, uh, the quality of sushi restaurants in New York has risen dramatically, and it can be you can see it by the number of uh, Michelin stars and. Uh, three and four star ratings in the New York Times, uh, the number of sushi restaurants there are that are doing well. And uh, now with Tocqueville uh, and 15 East. Which is where you work now, yes. the restaurants in Union Square. Yeah, uh, which was uh, the reason why I went there, the fact that I was able to enjoy both passions, one wine and one for sake. Uh, I became known for uh, serving sake and... and uh, uh, Developing knowledge in sake, and and I conveyed that to customers whenever we'd had dinners. Uh, I would talk about the, uh, the the pairings, and talk about each each individual sake, and introduce the sake producers, and talk a little bit about their background. So it was uh, it it was very interesting and a lot of fun. Yeah. And uh, so uh, I still, of course, uh, wine was still. My interest and will always be, but it just added another dimension. And uh, eventually, uh, I've done quite a bit with sake with these dinners and also teaching of sake. And so I was invited to uh, to Kyoto to be inducted as a sake samurai. Uh, oh wow! In a very formal ceremony in a Shinto, uh, an ancient Shinto shrine, just outside of Kyoto. Uh, it was fascinating, very interesting, a uh, touch of old old Japan. And uh, uh, from my understanding, today there are about only 30 sake samurais in the world and only nine outside of Japan. And and at the time, that must have been somewhat unheard of in New York yep. to yep. be both a master sommelier and a sake well, samurai. Well, I think I'm still the only one. Because it really seems to bridge. I mean, one of the things that's really fascinating about your career is you not only did the classic French, the Sopexa, the restaurants where you serve the classic wines, but you were early to embrace the new world, uh, holding dinners with the likes of Joe Heights and then uh, working with wines of Chile. And then you also embraced foreign cuisines at a time when it wasn't just obvious to do so, mm -hmm. like Mandarin Chinese. And, and Well, I learned very quickly working at Sayang that, uh, that uh, the formal cuisine just uh, uh, doesn't just revolve around French cuisine. Mm -hmm. I realized that uh, uh, classic Chinese cuisine is also very, very good and very intricate, uh, complex and worthy of doing good wine pairings with them. Uh, and obviously Japanese as well uh, in its own right. So uh, today I think that the New York scene has kind of, is kind of moving away from French cuisine and embracing other cultures, the, culture, the cuisine of other cultures, which is to me, a lot of they're very interesting, and uh, uh, it's broadening uh, all of our our senses. In a way, you kind of foresaw that happening. So, if you were to say to me, "Hey, I'm thinking about pairing a sake with this dish as opposed to pairing a wine with it," why would you do that? What What are the keys to a dish that would make you choose one beverage over another? Well, aesthetics has a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. So, when you taste, just like with tasting wines, you taste with your eyes, your nose, and your palate. And uh, 
So you, you look, you analyze, uh, you make deductions, uh, you follow that with the sets of smell, and uh, that uh, uh, increases your, your deductive abilities. And uh, the sense of taste is just uh, reaffirming uh, those uh, other deductions that you've already made. And when it comes to food, you, you, know, you learn that's what you do too. And, uh, and you see the compatibility of the beverage with the, uh, with the food. Now, um, I always believe that the cuisine comes first, the beverage is the accompaniment. Uh, so you have to follow a process. Uh, if it's a multiple course dinner, and pairing, you pair beverages that are of same consistency, if you like, uh, with the food. You pair certain ethnicity with certain ethnic food. And also, uh, you, uh, another factor is that opposites do attract. Mm -hmm. And perfect example, you think of foie gras and uh, sauternes. Well, the saltiness of the foie gras uh, uh, is compatible to the sweetness of sauternes and the acidity in sauternes cuts through the fat of foie gras. So uh, these are the things that you think about when you're pairing wine or sake with food. And how did you see the cellar mature and, and change? Uh, how did your vision evolve at, during your time at Chantrell? Uh, over 16 years, you know, where did you start and where did you finish? What were you proud of? I, I, it, it was a continuous flow. Yeah. Uh, I never thought of it as a starting point or a finishing point. Yeah. It was just something I did and it was fun. And along the way, what really captured your imagination? For, for instance, I really think of you sometimes as uh, kind of uh, getting early in the game in Austrian wine. Oh. Uh, well, uh, you know, uh, there would be wine specialists that would write about certain wines and about certain producers. Uh, I always found it fun to look for the non unknown producer that is wasn't already discovered, uh, and he was selling his wines at uh, a half the price or third of the price of the famous producer. And uh, lo and behold, oftentimes these producers became famous in their own right. So uh, it was also seeking to be able to give the consumer the quality without having to pay for the, uh, the, the PR. Did that become increasingly important as the wine market got more and more expensive? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. To I mean, yeah. Uh, the New York market uh, is unique when it comes to restaurants. Uh, the restaurants that do, seem to do well are the ones that are the most expensive or the least expensive, and everybody else in the middle really has to compete with, with each other. Uh, but there comes to a point where it uh, it can be overly expensive, and uh, that, that's all fine. I mean, there always, there's always somebody who's willing to pay for it. But uh, you know, if, uh, I always like to think of reaching out to a broader base because uh, sometimes price isn't always indicative of quality. It's uh, it's uh, uh, indicative of demand. And did you see more and more 
uh, regions from across the world kind of become more available in the way that you saw increased uh, quality of sake become available in New York? Well, yeah, I remember going to, to uh, Oregon at the first Pinot camp, and I was asked to be a moderator, which was a nice, a great honor, uh, but I had never been to Oregon before. And I got arrived there a couple of days early, and I visited, and I visited a number of wineries, and I noticed there were a couple of different soil types. So at that time, there was just Willamette Valley, Rogue River, of course, and, and uh, Umpqua Valley, but uh, they were they're not as close. Um, and I would ask the winemakers, uh, so are there other subdivisions or other appellations that are uh, 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 going to become uh, now with, with the different geographical or geological or geomorphological uh, soil types? And they said, oh, no, no, uh, this is, we're simple here and we have one style, the uh, the soil is conducive to uh, everybody. But the funny thing is that 10 years later, this is about, this is over, it's about a dozen sub-appellations within Willamette Valley alone. So, yeah, what it is that people do experiment, they do find better locations for different styles, and uh, the consumer is becoming much more knowledgeable, and they travel, and they read, and uh, uh, they talk, and they realize, and they taste, and they realize, hey, you know that uh, there is a difference. Uh, it's not like drinking Coca Cola where the formula is the same for for everybody. People don't talk about that, but they do talk about wine, and they do talk about why this tastes a different way than another. It's about terroir. Uh, it's about the soil. It's about uh, the grape variety. It's about the yields. About the alcohol contents. About the methods of uh, viticulture. It's about the methods of vinification. All of that combined, and uh, it's a great topic of conversation. And a lot of people are doing it. There are a lot of very knowledgeable consumers today, and that makes the wine industry a lot more interesting. Do you think that you might have been clued into the differences in terroir a little earlier than some because of your background in geology studying that? Well. Possibly that, um, but uh, I know there's a big, wi- a big wide world out there and a lot of possibilities, and uh, this goes way beyond my time. Uh, people, uh, soldiers would go to France uh, uh, to war, come back interested in, in uh, the wines of Europe and saying, oh, why can't we do this here? And in fact, now they do, uh, and, uh, and getting the recognition for it. Um, so... Uh, the model is still, I think, France, uh, and and also Italy, and Germany, uh, but they're making their own styles as well, and uh, well, uh, becoming famous famous for it, and rightly so. Are there styles that became famous that somewhat uh, took you by surprise? For you, like, oh, I didn't see that coming. That was that was amazing. <laughs> well, uh, I've seen over the years that. Certain regions, certain appellations, I wasn't fond of the style, but these winemakers would uh, send their children to wine schools uh, around the world, and, uh, in Montpellier and uh, in Napa Valley and in Australia to learn how to make wine. And they come back and the next generation would make wines in their own style. And, and a good example of that is Greece. I think Greece makes excellent wines now, where in the past they were not known for making good wines. 
uh, yeah, they made lots of retsina. Uh, they made uh, a lot of indigenous grape varieties that really were very rustic. Well, today, a lot of those rustic wines are not quite so rustic, but actually very good quality. And the indigenous grape varieties are very appealing. So, you know, for, for me as a, as a salesperson, as a sommelier, uh, uh, a beverage director, I, uh, uh, I welcome that because it gives me more, more tools to, uh, to talk to the customer, to talk to the consumer. And so you were at Chantrell, and, and Chantrell uh, uh, unfortunately closed, uh, mm. which must have been a blow. For everybody, <laughs> even to Karen and, and David, unfortunately. I think they were surprised as well. But, you know, uh, time moves on. And uh, so they're off and doing their own vent, uh, other ventures. And uh, I went from Chanterelle to work with Michael Monaco at uh, Porterhouse, whom I know very well. And that was a very, very pleasant experience. Um, and then this opportunity came up where I had heard about uh a hotel opening up with a couple of restaurants in it, and it's attached with other restaurants that they had. Didn't know who it was, but I looked into it, and it turned out it was uh, it was Joanne and Marco uh, who was involved with this. And uh, I had known them for quite some time because they used to come to uh, Chanterelle. In fact, they, they before they were married, they used to come on dates to Chanterelle. And Marco actually did a little stage in the cuisine, so. Um, I met with them a number of times, and uh, they, they brought me on board uh, because it was just something that I, I was looking forward to, something where I would have my hands in multiple uh, wine lists uh, in the development of the wine lists and, uh, uh, and, and continuing it uh, in the restaurant as they open up and, and, and grow. Because they have Tocqueville, which is a French-based uh, cuisine, and then they have 15 East, which is sushi. Yeah, and Japanese cuisine, yeah. So that gives you that that kind of fluidity to try yeah. the different beverages mm-hmm. that you know quite well because you are an un- unusual guy in that you have the classic French training, but then you also know quite a bit about sake and mm-hmm. other beverages as well, yeah. like Austrian wines, which might go well with sake or with sushi. And then they're also opening up a new project, which is, I believe is called Fourth. The fourth, right, and it's uh, it's going to be uh, kind of an American brasserie. Okay, but it's not not just American uh, cuisine, and it's not going to be all American wine list, not by a long shot. Uh, but it's going to be local. It's in the Union Square area, so, which is very much green market uh, driven. And that's very much the uh, philosophy of uh, both uh, Marco and uh, Joanne. And uh, so uh, I'm developing a wine list that will be a little eclectic. Um, and also they're, they're planning a, a second restaurant in the same building um, on a lower floor. And I'm, I'm not sure if I... I they want this mentioned, but I, I'll say but it anyway. <laughs> that's, that's our favorite kind of thing to do. <laughs> I, I think they're looking and doing a type of uh, South American or Brazilian tapas type restaurant, you know, quite casual. And uh, so uh, I, I'm looking at featuring South American wines, uh, Brazilian, uh, Uruguay, uh, Argentina, Chile, but other Southern Hemisphere wines uh, as well. So I've, it feels like all the petals of the rose of your career are almost 
conjoined in this in this project and this this greater flower because you you have the the sake you have the new world wines from california you have the new world wines from south america you have the classic french wines and you can play in all of those playgrounds whatever (laughs) (laughs) that's usually what my wife tells me too (laughs) so what's it like working with marco fun yeah yeah he's a great guy yeah he's uh he's passionate uh he's vibrant uh he's funny uh but he's focused, and uh, uh, I very much enjoy working with him. Yeah. And what have you picked up working with sushi? Because I know you did work with Asian cuisine in the past, but it was Chinese. And what's it like now working directly with a sushi chef? Well, I remember when I first started working there, and uh, so I was, I was running around the dining room trying to figure out uh, how the restaurant works. Uh, and where I could be of help. Um, and at the end of the evening, you know, uh, everybody had left. Uh, Masa, who was a chef, who's a chef partner there, uh, told me to sit down at the sushi bar, and uh, he just started making sushis for uh, for me, one after the other. And uh, uh, the uh, the acting sommelier there just kept on bringing out different sakes and different wines. Um, usually, uh, it was one of each. And uh, I would taste them and see how they were, how compatible they were. And I was very impressed uh, with the whole experience. And I just said I found my home. <laughs> and that's about the only way I can describe it. And Masa had worked at Jewel Baco previously? That's, that's correct. And now he's, a, he's the, uh, a chef partner at uh, 15 East. And um, he's extremely skilled. And when uh, you're pairing up with with sushi, what are you thinking about? Because uh, I, you know, it seems like a whole different ballgame than than uh, than French cuisine. So how do you go about? Well, I try to stay away from certain things that would clash. Uh, Oaky wines would clash. Uh, certainly, it's, uh, the freshest seafood you can have, and much of it is raw, not all, but uh, so. Red wine would have to be very low in tannin, and therefore a thin-skinned uh, grape like Pinot Noir works, um, and a few other grape varieties, but uh, that would be the closest. And um, uh, white wines, definitely, but not oaky white wines. Uh, wines with a certain amount of fruit, uh, sometimes dry, sometimes off-dry works. A lot has to do with personal preferences of the consumer. Who are other restaurateurs that maybe you didn't work with that you've especially admired over the years and seen in the New York market? There are a lot. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Michael White, mm-hmm. uh, I think he's extremely talented. Uh, well, Christian Delivrier, I did work with. Uh, oh, my goodness. Uh, at Lespinas, uh, I consulted for them. Uh, it was with uh, Greg Kunz. Sure. Yeah. Um, Anita Lowe at, uh, uh, at uh, Anissa. Anissa. She's very talented. Um, and who are some of the sommeliers that you saw come through that maybe you even helped train at some point or other that have particularly impressed you over, over your career? There are a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Somalia world has has blossomed dramatically, and especially in New York. 
Laura Maniax was a was a very uh, intense young lady when I first met her. She had come to uh, to Chanterelle actually, and I, she told me that that was her inspiration for becoming a uh, sommelier and a master sommelier. Uh, certainly, Fred Dexheimer, Scott Carney, um, but. Uh, there are many others, but I still remember Renzo Rapaccioli uh, from Barolo, uh, the classic, classic sommelier. Um, I don't know if he's still working. I think he may have retired, but I don't. I I, I don't think so because uh, a sommelier like that never retires. So <laughs> you've seen a, a number of changes in the industry, but what would your advice be? And I'm sure this is well honed because you you have trained many people. But what would your advice be to a young sommelier just moving to New York today? What would you tell that person who wanted to get involved in the business? Well, make sure that you learn your uh, uh, the theory first, and uh, and uh, then go to the tasting, learn how to taste, and then learn how to serve. Uh, serve is very important, and uh, knowing how to deal with people. Uh, it it uh, it kind of surprises me that there are so many young people that want to come in green off the street and say, "I want to be a sommelier." Um, where have you worked before? Well, I've, I haven't worked anywhere. Uh, you've never worked uh, in a restaurant. Uh, never served people. I said no, no. But uh, that's not important to me. So I'm sorry. I, you know, I I don't have any advice for you. Go and learn how to deal with people first, uh, because that's what you'll be doing as a sommelier. That's uh, that's key. That's what you have to focus on, your, your consumer, your customer. So you might advise starting as uh, a lower rank in a restaurant, maybe a busboy or back waiter, oh, yeah. and kind of working your way up. Yeah, definitely. Kind of just spending time on the floor and seeing yep. the basics. And of- dealing with people, you know, talking to people. Yeah. Well, Mr. Dagorn, it's been a very much a pleasure to have you here today. Uh, over the years of your career, I know you've opened up many bottles. What are, mm. what are some of the, the real special bottles that have really stood out for you? God, there's so many. <laughs> it depends on the day, depends on what I'm eating, depends on the weather, depends on the company, depends on so many factors. There are so many great wines out there. For me to say, okay, this uh, uh, Richbourg 1988 out of Magnum uh, uh, was the best wine I'd ever had, could be, uh, or that, uh, um, that uh, 1893 Chateau de Chem, uh, boy, that was memorable. But uh, there, there are... There are a lot, and some of them are not as highbrow, let's say, as, as the ones I just mentioned. Sometimes they're just simple wines that, uh, from producers that I've never heard of before, all of a sudden, hey, you know, this is good. Uh, that's a new discovery, and uh, I keep finding them. So. Are, are there people over the years that you've especially enjoyed to open a bottle with? My wife. <laughs> well, that's a good combination. <laughs> uh, and my father, yeah. So, what did you pick up from him about wine? What did he? What lessons did he instill? Uh, yeah, well, he's the one that uh, taught me the most about fine dining, uh, French cuisine, and and the love of wine to go with with uh, French cuisine. So, uh, my hats off to him. And what changes about the business have kind of stood out for you over your long career? 
What, what's very different now than how it used to be in the 80s? <laughs> the focus is not no longer French wines, but uh, California wines and for a lot of people, uh, which I was kind of surprised at. Uh, I, I'm kind of surprised at that, for one thing. But, uh, I mean, of course, there's a ready-made market here. Uh, so the focus, especially for young people, is California or American wines. Not just California, but Oregon and Washington and uh, uh, even Long Island to a certain extent. But, well, to a much lesser extent, but still. Uh, to the point that sometimes they don't even look at Europe anymore. And so I'm, I'm kind of surprised that there is that, that either breach in education or separation of, of ideals that... See, diversity, I think, is the key thing to knowledge with wine. Um, but if you focus on just one style, uh, it kind of limits you. And um, there are some ideas that uh, do that successfully. But uh, when it comes to the consumer, I think that uh, they should have an open mind. Um, there's nothing wrong with uh, learning to taste, uh, having to taste a, a nice uh, Chateau Mossard from Lebanon uh, or tasting some wonderful wines from South Africa uh, or tasting a, an Auxerrois from Luxembourg. Uh, you know, even some Canadian wines are excellent, especially from Okanagan Valley in British Columbia. That was eye-opening for me. So, Are you encountering more people that maybe haven't had some of the more classics as the prices of those classics have risen? Well, uh, the prices of the classics may have risen, but there are others uh, in the same, from the same region uh, that have come up to replace them uh, on wine lists. Uh, sure, uh, Domino Romani Conti is very expensive, but that's not the only Burgundy that you can find. You can find others. They're there. No, I just mean uh, the, the young sommeliers that you encounter... Um, is it less likely now that they'll ever have tried DRC than someone that has seen the career progression that you have? It depends on where where they work and the, the setting. Yeah. Uh, certainly, if uh, a sommelier works in a Spanish restaurant, their focus is going to be Spanish wines and an Italian restaurant, Italian wines. Uh, my advice to them is, like I tell them, uh, uh, all students that approach me, what do they do with their careers? I tell them, well, work in one place for a year, uh, learn as much as you can, uh, put it on your resume, and then move on. My only problem is I've never followed my own advice. Yeah, because you you stick with it for quite yeah, a while at I've one place. I've been lucky to find places that uh, uh, suits my temperament, and I get I get comfortable. Because there's not a lot of people who have worked in one restaurant for 16 years as a, as a sommelier. That's fairly rare right. in New York. With the number of sommeliers around town, there are not many sommeliers that are much older than 16 years old. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen the average age kind of go down yes. over the course of your career? Oh, yes. What's that been like? Well, I, I think there's a lot more people interested in that profession just for good reasons. Thanks to you. Well, I, that's thank you for giving me that credit, but I, you know, it's just that uh, I still remember talking with my, my sister-in-law. She's a physician, and she says it's unnatural for anybody to be so happy at what they're doing on, on a regular basis uh, on the floor of a restaurant mm -hmm. or just uh, uh, working those 
crazy hours. And I say, well, yeah, I, I can't. I guess if there was a poll taken today of sommeliers and physicians, if uh, today if they had a choice to start all over, would they do the same thing? I think that sommeliers, more, certainly more than half of the sommeliers today would say, yes, I would t choose that l direction. Uh, physicians, my, my sister-in-law says probably not. <laughs> so, uh, the malpractice insurance is a lot less for the sommiers, I think. Uh, I, I would imagine so, yes. <laughs> How have you seen the development of the critic culture affect the wine side? Um, you know, in terms of uh, wine critics rising to prominence over the course of the last couple decades? There have been a lot of wine critics. Uh, um, some become more prominent. Um, my concern with this is that people start to say, well, uh, this wine critic says this is good, therefore that's the one I'm going to buy. Well, what that says to me is that they're not trusting their own uh, sense of taste. Um, everybody has a sense of taste. Critics have their sense of taste, and they may be trained but that doesn't mean that their taste buds are, or selections are any better than anybody else. I tell my students, some of them have never tasted wine before. Well, if you don't like the wine, say so. Uh, if you want, your taste, uh, sense of taste hasn't developed enough yet to un understand a great Bordeaux, for instance, with, uh, for instance, with a lot of tannin, that's fine. Um, you will develop it. But the thing is, don't spend money on it uh, till you know what you're tasting and uh, uh, taste it and, and try to assess it. And then it's not a question of yummy or yucky. It's a question of does it work for you? Does it work for your customers? Does it work with the food? Uh, ask those questions and then make your decision. And you've gone all the way through the Master Sommelier program and you've seen many other people do it subsequently. Who do you think really benefits from that and what characteristics are the, the people who are very successful at it share? The ones who benefit from it are the consumer. The consumer level. Because uh, a good sommelier will, in effect, steer the consumer to the right wines for them. And if the customer says, gee, I don't like that, well, that's fine. You know, let me get you something that you will like. And, and it happens to me. Some customers sometimes tell me, oh, I, I really don't like that. Not a problem. Let's find you something that you will like. So that's what it is. Uh, being able to direct to pe people to some th the taste sensation that will work. One of the things you do that's very interesting is that you consult for the LaGuardia Airport restaurants, which is a number of different outlets. How does mm -hmm. that uh, work, and how did that come about? Well, uh, it, I was approached by actually Michael Monaco about doing um, consulting for, for O2G. The chef at Porterhouse. Uh, yes, right. And I was working there at the time. I said, my, you know, I, I thought that was great. I love the idea. There were multiple outlets that were opening up uh, for Delta and uh, Terminal C, Terminal D at LaGuardia. And uh, they all had different themes. And I, I just loved the idea. So I, I was had to do something like 16 different uh, wine lists for 16 different outlets. And uh, I didn't get to taste all the cuisine, but I had an idea as to what, what they were looking for. And... Uh, I was able to do that. Uh, I realized I was able to do it rel relatively easily and quickly uh, just because of my 
prior experience, and uh, I very much enjoyed doing that. Uh, that's why I like the idea of doing more, many different venues at the same time and juggling that. Which is something you've been good at, you know, the new the new venture as well. Well, something else sure. you've been good at is a number of sommelier competitions over the years. Did any of those uh, many that you've placed in quite highly really stand out for you? Well, I uh, very much enjoyed uh, representing the United States, representing the United States in the World uh, uh, Championship of Sommeliers, the ASI, in Paris in 1989. Uh, I. Didn't make the finals, uh, but it didn't matter. I met, I met the sommeliers from around the world, which was a fascinating experience. It made me realize that uh, uh, in the United States, uh, the sommelier uh, profession is still a budding profession. You go to uh, Italy, which has the largest sommelier uh, population in the world, uh, Japan, which has the second largest, uh, surprisingly enough, France has a third, and there are sommeliers from all over the world now, and they do meet, they knew, uh, and they do converse, uh, they become friends, uh, it's, uh, it becomes very international. Uh, so in the United States, it's still a new profession. I mean, I remember going to, uh, going to the jury duty, and I was always the first one to be picked, and I wondered why, and other people around me uh, uh, were wondering why too. Finally, the last day of uh, jury duty, a lawyer called me up and called me in the, and, uh, and mentioned, here's a prof- profession I only see on crossword puzzles. So, <laughs> he just wanted to meet you? I guess so he so. wanted to spend some time, maybe get yeah. some... Uh, I was never chosen, some, but... Uh, <laughs> some wine tips? That was, uh, that was the situation. I'm always thrown off juries because I, I say I discriminate against this region or that region. Oh. And they're like, oh, you don't like Kunawar? <laughs> well, you're out of here, you know? How'd you go? I'm just yeah. kidding. Hey, so... I noticed recently, and congratulations, by the way, that you uh, were given the first ever Krug Award for Wine and Spirits Professional over a lifetime career. What, what, what experience was that like? That was, uh, it was uh, a joy to my heart. <laughs> I was very honored uh, that, uh, that I was approached and uh, given this, uh, uh, this honor, uh, especially from a, a winery such as Krug, which is at the pinnacle of the Champagne region and worldwide known. So uh, being the first one, uh, that that means a lot to me. And uh, it was Melanie Trifon who received the second, which I'm, I'm uh, happy for her, well-deserved. Roger de Gorn, a mentor to many and a guide to finding taste sensations that you will like. Thank you for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that pod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. 
and thank you for listening.